Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Bill Press Show on this Thursday, Thursday, June 29th, 2017. Good morning, Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press. And it's a lot of pressure, by the way, that bumper giving everything you need. That's like a lot to live up to because you, you need a lot. You need a lot to fight Trump, to you fight his agenda. Happen. It's not just like talk. You got to go act these days. We're all about the action. You know, protests, rallies are going to be happening all over the country this July 4th as Americans fight back against this president's health care bill, which, by the way, the uh, Politico has this article, Trump to warring GOP senators, I'm on your side. Hmm. This, of course, after the Senate failed to advance their health care bill. They were supposed to vote on it today. And I went into this week like very nervous, very anxious about what was going to happen to my beloved Affordable Care Act. And guess what? It's still here. Still here. Lives uh, another couple of weeks. But, you know, you got to keep on battling. You can't let these guys see you sweat because that's what they did in the House. There was a gap in the passion and the advocacy and they slid it right through they cut a sweetheart deal they slid it right through it's what they're going to try to do today and we got to make sure we stop them by the way you can follow the bill press show on facebook facebook.com backslash bill press show uh subscribe of course on youtube the bill press show on twitter at bp show if you have comments suggestions ideas uh, I'm on Twitter at Igor Volsky. Tweet at me. Interact with the show. Peter Ogburn, good morning. Hello, Igor. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Your hair, by the way, looks great this don't, morning. Don't, don't Your do hair this looks <laughs> terrific. Don't do this this morning. Uh, I <laughs> like the cut. I enjoy it. I forgot to put product in this morning. I wouldn't have even noticed. So it's, it's I would not to... have hey, even noticed. Do you have any beard balm, Peter? Uh, I do at home. I uh, make my own beard balm, hmm. but I don't have any here. I need to borrow some. I have some. Is that for like a smoother? See, I can't grow a beard, so I don't know. Is that like a smoother slicker? What does it do? You want to condition your beard. The uh, skin underneath your beard. And the skin underneath. Oh, okay. It's for the skin underneath. Well, that makes sense. I I make my own out of Jehovah. Oh, my. Jehovah oil. Huh. Does that take a long time for you? Is that like a a weekend? No, no, no. No, you just just brew it. Okay. You don't brew it. Or whatever you do, you like, you make it. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, seasonal citrus, whatever I have on hand. Ah, all right. Well, Peter's beard and more, but first... 
This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Boy, how about that MSNBC? Ooh, all the what liberals, is going on? All the liberals love MSNBC, right? They're the cool liberal station. Well, not only do they have a former Republican congressman on the morning show with Joe Scarborough, not only do they have Nicole Wallace, a former George W. Bush advisor. She's like a host news. now, right? Wallace? She's an She's actual got her own show. host. Huh. Not only Daily Show. Not only did they hire you, you it to do a weekend show. They have now hired Brett Stevens, conservative columnist from the New York Times. He will be an on-air contributor. As a matter of fact, he's on TV right ah, now. Beautiful on morning show. Beautiful. So everybody loves to talk about how liberal oh, MSNBC yeah. hey, is. But at least we resistant. saved Lawrence O'Donnell, right? Uh, <laughs> so congratulations to all the conservatives that are finding work at MSNBC. Hell, if you're a conservative. Go apply at MSNBC. Yeah. They seem to be hiring uh, yeah. all of them. Yeah. This is a, a troubling story. You remember Grenfell Tower just about a month ago, the large uh, the fire. That's the, right. The large fire in England. So the big problem there is the cladding that was on the outside was not fire retardant. It was very very flammable, and they had de- they've done a check on high rises all across England now to That's see smart. which That's ones good. have the same type of cladding on there. 120 different high rises were tested. All of them failed. Ooh. All every single one of them failed a fire safety check on the cladding on the outside. 37 different local authorities checked 120 buildings and that what came back with a 100% failure rate. Oh, fix that now. Are we going to do this in America? I hope we should. We should. We should absolutely take a look. Radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Bill Press Show coming to you live from Capitol here, uh, Capitol, Capitol Hill, Capitol Hill, Hill here. here in Washington, D.C. Good morning, good morning. Lots to cover this week. Busy week in Washington before the senators uh, flee home for the July 4th recess. By the way, Peter, you know right. you know what you should do? You know what folks should do? What? So this happened last week, I think, when the Senate health care bill came out, right? They just planned it in secret and negotiated it in secret, and then they released it, and then they fled town. And so folks showed up at, air- at the D.C. airport, the Reagan National Airport, to say— you can't just drop a bill and then fly away. There was like a protest, like 80, 90 people. Um, I actually encountered, I came down to the airport, saw rumors of this brewing on Twitter, and uh, came down to see what was going on and saw no other than uh, Chuck Grassley, the senator from Iowa, sitting there in the airport, ready to go home. And uh, I came up to him and I said, hey, Senator, uh, hi, hi. How are you? Uh, uh, he said, hi. Hi, what's your name? What are you doing here? And I said, I want to talk about health care to this health care bill that just dropped. And he gets up, starts walking away from me. 
I try to ask him, have you read the bill? Do you support the bill? And the man just keeps on walking. We're asking him, are you concerned about like millions of people losing coverage, hundreds of thousands of Iowans losing coverage? Man just keeps on walking. Never saw a guy walk so quickly That's away amazing. from me just towards that security line. That's amazing. Ugh. Really? I mean, look, they don't want to talk they about They don't want to this. talk about the bill. They don't want to talk about it. And when they do talk about it, it's it's telling that they always fall back onto, well, it's not Obamacare. It's not Obamacare. No one defends the no one no. defends the bill. There's no cheerleader for the bill. There's just Obamacare is bad, and here's what we've got. Um, but I got to say, you know, folks across the country have to see these senators off in D.C., have to greet them at their hometown airports. Could you imagine that your constituents when you land holding up signs saying, don't vote for this bill, don't take health care away from me? I mean, that's powerful. you got to get into these senators' faces. That's really the only way to do it. They have to see the pressure. They have to hear the pressure in all of the Fourth of July barbecues and parades and firework displays. Get out there and show your solidarity for the millions of Americans, 22, 23 millions, who could lose coverage as a result of uh, what they're trying to do. You know what's really interesting to me is uh, this was uh, not that long ago, but there was a after Trump was elected, our friend John Yarmouth went back to Kentucky, his home state, and he happened to be on the same flight as Mitch McConnell. Oh, my, oh wow. Now, <clears throat> John Yarmouth got off of the plane, and there were his constituents there that greeted him with applause. Oh. But oh. Mitch McConnell, no, 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 because Mitch McConnell, who happens to be married to the Secretary of Transportation, had a car meet him at the airplane and didn't bother coming into the terminal to face his constituents. He just, oh. poof, left. Oh, my. Didn't go really? Yeah, isn't that wild? Wow, that is wild. Yeah. Wait, he, so doesn't he, wanna, he doesn't want to hear about this either. Wait, tell me more. So you can get a car to meet you at the airplane? When your wife is the Secretary of Transportation, you can. Wow. Because yeah. it's Secret Service? It's Secret Service that... Yeah, he has service. He has Secret yeah, Service. Oh, that's right, because right, that was what we learned the during the shooting. Right. Because yeah, he definitely has secret a, service. Yeah. He okay. can do that kind of stuff. He can do that kind of stuff. Huh. Well, that is, you know, if I, look, I've never wanted to run for office, but now <laughs> that I know That's that enough. a car could meet me at the airplane, that could be a uh, Game changer. Reason. That's a, That is a game changer. Excuse me while I file some paperwork. <laughs> yeah. A Bill Press exclusive here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd yeah. be a horrible candidate. You know why? I, I like don't really like talking to people. And that's all that job is. What are you doing right now? Yeah, like here I do, but like if I have to go out and meet them at fundraisers and listen to stories, yeah. like it's just not what not what I do. But I do like the radio talking if you ever to people do like this. Hearing myself talk is what I if like. If you ever do run for office, the, someone will use this tape in the I know, they really will. Yeah. They really will. Yeah. I mean, depends on the person. Let's not generalize. Fair. There's some people I don't like talking to. I mean, look, <laughs> the tapes. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll <laughs> shop this around, sell it. You know, you might see my face again if you do run for president. No, see, but what I re what I really want is in the current climate of Russia-U.S. relations, a guy named Igor Volsky. I'm not sure if you could get elected. <laughs> Listen, Barack Obama won. That's fair. <laughs> Please, that's fair. Barack Hussein Obama was president. And I'm just as talented. No, but what I really want is my husband to run for office oh, there you because I think I would be oh. a terrific like sp like spout political spouse yeah, oh I'd be so be a, good be a great first I man. Is I, it first man 
Uh, we'll see. I mean, I can go, you know, first dude, first, first man, dude? first guy. First guy? First husband? First I, I think I'd be very right. effective. It's like just enough, you know, responsibility, but not all that responsibility. It's essentially being a kept man. Yes, I could do that. That's like really great. That's the, <laughs> I could that's totally really the do dr- that. Let's be Peter, honest. That's really Peter the dream. Peter just stepped right into that character, by the way. Yeah, I could absolutely <laughs> do that. <laughs> so it's a race between us now to see. Yes. Which one of us yes. gets there first? Uh, but, you know, I'd have to, because Brian's from Indiana, we'd have to move to Indiana. Oh, like, that, that. that's like a huge obstacle <laughs> to, to this plan. Good morning, Indiana. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. <laughs> Pete, we love you. Pete Buttigieg is there. So yeah. You have a friend. It. That's it. I mean, you know, look, I, I, I've i been in Indiana a bunch. I think it's fine. Jesus, uh, Igor. But, uh, <laughs> Living there, it's a different experience, is what I'm saying. Boy, this is just rich with content for attack ads when you do run. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, So, listen, I want to spend a little time here, and we have a a great show. We're going to cover all of the politics uh, that that have happened this week. We're also going to talk a little later on to uh, Mark Glaze, who's my partner in Guns Down, uh, which is an organization talking about the need for fewer guns in America. Uh, We just released a new poll showing that the majority of Americans, 52% of Americans, believe there are too many guns in this country. Of course, that's not what you hear from neither really the Democratic Party nor, of course, the gun lobby. Uh, And so we're going to have a conversation about what will it take, what will it take for us to finally have some sensible gun reforms in this country. And then later on, my good colleague at the Center for American Progress, Sam Berger, is going to discuss where do we go uh, with this health care fight? Because there was an interesting article last night as I was preparing for the show, because hard to believe, but I do try to prepare for these shows. doesn't show, I know. Uh, uh, the New York Times reported that Republicans are now considering negotiating with Democrats uh, uh, to come up with a health care solution, which, you know, hold your gasp. It's really how Mitch McConnell tried to whip the vote in the last few days, saying if we don't approve this bill, we're going to have to negotiate with Chuck Schumer. And that was supposed to really scare them and get them on this measure. But the Times reporting that they may uh, be seriously considering that sitting down with Chuck Schumer, with Democrats. Now, Donald Trump was asked about this uh, by John Carl yesterday, these rumors going around that maybe there was enough interest um, to talk to Democrats about tweaking the current law. Uh, and here's what Trump said yesterday. Thank Mr. You very Mr. Much. President, Senator Schumer says he'd like to Thank come down President. and have all 100 senators come here to talk health care. Would you be willing to negotiate with all of them? Got to find out if he's serious. He hasn't been serious. Yeah, hasn't been serious, and that would be a real that would be a real deal. That's actually (laughs) that would require actual skill. And Democrats are saying, look, for us to get to the table, for us to have a real conversation, first thing you got to do is take repeal off the table. Then we'll talk about what healthcare looks like. And so Sam and I are going to discuss what are those sensible fixes that we can put in place to make sure you get more insurers participating in the exchanges, to make sure that some of the out-of-pocket costs, the deductibles, 
the, the co-payments, that those begin to come down, that you really stabilize the market. Because there's several things that are going on here. Most of the reason why you're seeing a lot of the disruptions in the current Obamacare system is, and let's be honest about this, because Republicans have sabotaged the law from day one, absolutely have done everything they could possibly do to make sure people don't enroll. Uh, they repealed and got rid of uh, some stabilizing mechanisms that were put into the law. They didn't expand Medicaid. And by the way, it's so funny now to hear Republicans, especially led by that idiot from Texas, John Cornyn. Uh, have you seen this guy on Twitter? I mean, this it's guy so is either like a fool or is like a like a some kind of performance artist that I don't understand. But he tweets things like 28 million uninsured under Obamacare. Like he's all of a sudden concerned about how many people don't have coverage under Obamacare. And of course, it's 28 million, partly because his state of Texas didn't expand Medicaid. Lots of other Republican led states didn't expand Medicaid. And you did everything you can to convince people not to sign up for the law. So, yeah, there's an uh, there's an uninsured problem. And also there's an, an uninsured problem because, frankly, and I think this is what Sam and I are going to get into. The law isn't perfect. Yeah. I mean, it's a starter house. It's a baseline. It's a foundation. But you got to improve it um, in lots of different ways. And you got to expand coverage to populations who uh, haven't been able to sign up and, and all of that. Uh, but for that, you have to have a serious conversation frankly. And you have to have Republicans and Democrats who are willing to actually talk about not, not what the Republicans are talking about, which is how do we give a big tax cut to very rich people? You have to talk about how do you expand coverage and lower costs for people who don't currently have it. And that's the conversation that we're not hearing. And by the way, Peter, you know, a layer of uh, the healthcare debate that we're seeing now in places like California, we saw it in Vermont, uh, and of course Bernie Sanders, a big proponent of a single payer system. Let's do it. Uh, and that too, you know, is something that Democrats should uh, should think through, should talk about. I've long said. You know, I spent a long time uh, working on healthcare. I started my career working on the ACA, so all of this is really both painful and full circle. Um, and have said a lot for a long time that the challenge with single payer, and I'm happy to for people to um, to chime in and tell me if I'm wrong. Addy Gorvolsky at BP Show. The challenge with single payer is that transition. Of going from a multi-payer system, which is what we have today, to a single payer, right? And uh, the funding mechanism, what that looks like in the in the first few years, uh, and then ensuring that there's no disruption in coverage. And frankly, um, I haven't seen a state in America that's been able to deal and manage uh, that kind of challenge. It doesn't mean that it's insurmountable and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't figure out a model and a system and test things and see what works. I mean, in theory, um, I don't necessarily oppose it, but figuring out exactly how you do it. And maybe, you know, there's there's all kinds of speculation. Maybe you start with a public option and you see how that does. And then you continue building on those changes until you get because ultimately what you want is two things, right? You want Three things. You want everybody covered, universal coverage. Yeah. 
You want to bring down healthcare costs. You want to squeeze out all the inefficiencies in the system. Um, and you generally just want an efficient, simple system. And other countries have been able to achieve that with a single-payer system. We went in a different direction, especially after World War II. And the question is, um, how do we get there? How do we get there? Vermont tried and struggled. California didn't have that vote. Um, but I say, you know, job number one, job number one is making sure the ACA doesn't go away because <laughs> it'd be a lot harder to get to single payer or anything else, really, uh, if we start all over again. Um, and then job two is like, yes, let's have a real conversation with everything on the table, all solutions on the table with the goal of getting to universal coverage and bringing down the astronomical cost of healthcare, not just what you and I pay in terms of premiums and deductibles and all that, but also the actual cost of the care uh, that in this country is far higher than it is anywhere else in the world. I hear what you're saying. I do also think that uh, that is reminiscent of the reason why Donald Trump is president. Uh -oh. I think Hillary Clinton was really wishy-washy on the issue of health care, and frankly, you sound a little wishy-washy on it. I think that voters want to see Democrats say, we can fix this, this is how we fix this, it's single-payer, this is how we're going to get it done. And you had a presidential candidate who was saying, well, single-payer sounds nice, but we're not going to be able to get it done. And... I just I don't think Democrats can be there. I don't think they can do that. I think they've got to say, this is the way we move forward. This is what it is. It's got to be single payer. We're going to cover everybody and then move forward with it. I mean, look, the Obamacare, for all intents and purposes. Tread carefully, Peter. Obamacare, not a great plan. Not a great plan. It's fine. It got the ball rolling. It is, at the end of the day, a conservative Healthcare plan. You know it. I know it. It's great. I think it's great. I think it's way better than what we had before. But at the end of the day, if you want to talk about real progress and real change, Democrats have got to be the ones fighting for single payer, universal health care. Everybody gets covered. Full stop. Well, look, the, uh, the, the point you make of... The Which you're right, is a brilliant one. Is a oh, <laughs> such a brilliant point. By the way, when do we break? 26, 20, oh, nine, more nine minutes. More minutes? Okay, great. great, 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 great. The point you make, this division in uh, the primary of Hillary Clinton giving kind of a wishy-washy, here's what I'm going to do on healthcare. And by the way, I don't remember what she said she was going to do. I remember what Bernie said he was going to do. I don't remember what she said. Uh is really the great divide between the two candidates, right? Bernie Sanders lays out what he would like to achieve without a roadmap for how to achieve it. Hillary Clinton was of the mindset and has been, I think, her entire career of, let me give you my five-step plan yes. for how to achieve what I think is achievable in the current system. And to, the question is, to inspire people and to win elections, do you need that aspirational vision of here's what we can, here's where we can get I don't know how we're going to get there, but we're going to try to get there. And that I'm not saying that that's a faulty premise. Sure. Um, or do you say, here's what is reasonable within the current system and here's what I'm going to be able to do? Clearly, uh, the Hillary Clinton approach was not, shall we say, the most successful right. 
in this past election cycle. But look, the single payer thing, I think it's difficult. I uh, think you're you're, you're it's, not wrong. It is difficult. But here, here's the last thing I'll say. I'm not, it, and there's also you know problems within the program itself that you can tweak. We can, we can leave that aside and talk about that later. And it's not the holy grail of if, if you have single payer, you fix all of our problems overnight. You don't. Yeah. It's a big, complicated, expensive system with lots of different interests. But all I'm saying is we got we took it off the table. Yeah. When we started talking about Obamacare. Right. That was a mistake. Huge mistake. And well, that's my point is that yes. Obamacare was sort of crafted as a way to get Republican support. It was. Barack Obama thought he was going to be able to compromise and work yeah. with Republicans on this. And it is a it is the number one boogeyman for Republicans now. Like this, like we tried to make this happen so that Republicans would love it, and they hate it more than they hate anything else in the world, right? And so, uh, again, I don't know if there's no Hillary bashing thing, but, like, Hillary's pl- plan when she talked about health care was we're going to figure out a way to work with Republicans to get this done and make this happen. Those days are gone. Oh, yeah. Those days are gone, dead in the water. You are not going to work with Republicans on any kind of health care reform, full stop. Republicans are not going to work with Democrats on any kind of health care reform, full stop. It's uh, It's over. It's over, Johnny. I mean, it's over. If if any if you had any doubt, this healthcare bill or death bill or wealth bill, whatever you want to call it, should have really convinced you that they're not interested in the healthcare. Right. They're interested in the tax cuts. That's what it's all about. And they're interested in denying Democrats the win on the healthcare. So you might as well try to figure out the best policy for you from policy perspective from a political perspective and you know the president you're right president obama went into the health care fight thinking that there's this narrow path to bipartisan support and you know the argument which isn't necessarily a, a wrong one that if you're going to do something as big as health care you got to have bipartisan buy-in and he thought he could kind of weave a path and in the very early days of the obamacare negotiations you had people like my, uh, like like track running star Chuck Grassley, uh, say that he supports an individual mandate, and talk about sensible approaches and bipartisan solutions. And they had all of these blue paper walk through commission reports they put out and all the common ground they had. So there was hope in the beginning. There was hope until, and there was this very clear moment, actually, Peter, when Republicans turned on health care. It was in 2009 when Frank Luntz, the Republican hair pollster, here with the hair piece. It's Peter's uh, Peter's favorite. Peter's favorite pollster. Frank Luntz. uh, I don't think he had a hair piece. That's a bad bad hair piece. Do you not think that's a hair piece? I'm not saying that it's not. I just never thought of it that way. But yeah, while I talk about it, you should wait, Google some images. Real quick, here. just just so you guys know, Go Chris Saliza is now CNN's Frank Luntz. Ooh, oh, that's well put. Yeah, that might be a hairpiece. Yeah, that might be. Oh hair yeah. But he released a memo in 2009 saying Republicans gain more by opposing Obamacare than they do. Is this Capito here on MSNBC? Yeah, that's right. Th- that they do. Um, <laughs> let's stop listening to me. Let's turn her on. Yeah, uh, yeah. Republicans gain more. Republicans gain more by opposing Obamacare than they do supporting it, working with Democrats, that they will do better politically. And that was literally, Peter, like a light switch. Republicans, their conservative interest group said, 
we're going to oppose it all. And that's when you saw a wall of opposition spring up almost overnight, literally almost overnight. And we went from this moment of kind of kumbaya, we'll work together, we'll figure health care out. To frankly, uh, you know, years and years, what turned into years um, of interfighting, both when the law was passing and when it finally passed. But my point is, my point is, even though Obama took single payer off the table and eventually took the public option off the table a lot earlier than was reported, by the way, mm-hmm. as Tom Daschle inadvertently revealed in his book, uh, Republicans still even though those things were off the table, were not in the bill, we're still saying that what you correctly say is a fairly conservative framework for health care law. They were still calling it a road to single payer yeah. because the policy doesn't actually matter. They've built out the narratives. They've built out the attacks. And those are going to remain consistent because they're bad at governing. They're good at rhetoric and political attacks. You know what I would like to do now is I'd like to read tweets from our viewers and listeners because we do have tweets. Are they all in support of you, Peter? Are you going to self-select? Are you going to self-select? Jamie, back me up. I don't select tweets that that, uh, back up. By the way, here's your chance to support me. I tweet, o- tweet us at tweet, tweet now at BC. I, Peter, oh. Peter also uh, celebrates tweets that that denigrate him. So true. it's it pretty. Those are welcome as well. It is true. No, please, please. <laughs> uh, for example, Igor Vicky Ann says, "Yay, Vicky. Igor is here." Hey, Vicky. She's happy you're here. Thanks, Vicky. Uh, here are Thank a couple of tweets on healthcare. Uh, KG says, "America to Republicans, when you come for one of us." You come for all of us. That's good because That's good. That's, we are actually be standing up. James Klein says the ACA was not health care reform. It was health insurance reform. True. That is it true. didn't solve the Well, it was health care reform in the sense that there were delivery reforms in the system that urged more coordinated care uh, and, and some payment reforms that urged more efficient care. So in that sense, it was. But it was a smaller part of it. That's true. All right. This is maybe a little harsh. Okay. Here we go. Dale, here we go. Says, Early cl- in the morning, I'll... Claiming that transitioning to single payer would be too hard is just as ignorant as silly as when it was said that it was too hard for blacks to become citizens. No, what? How is that? I'm not going to touch that. I'm not I'm sure what that... Read that okay. one. Another tweet... Uh, Says, uh, just study how other com- countries implemented single payer and use that as a model. Yeah, Duh. we should. We should. Duh. You know, in the book, I wrote a healthcare book. Did you know about this? 2000, I wrote a healthcare book uh, with Dr. Howard Dean, former Vermont governor. We have a chapter about how other uh, nations do healthcare and what that, what lessons we can learn. Yeah. Howard Dean's prescription for real healthcare reform available for two cents on Amazon. Find it's a great us deal. On Twitter <laughs> at VP Show. At VP Show. show. At Igor Volsky, uh, thank you for m- most of those nice comments, by the way. Mm. Thank, thank you. That's very, very, very kind. Those weren't too bad. They weren't too bad. But look, the, I think the, ultimately the point that I'm trying to make is no matter where you are in this fight, if you're fighting for single payer, if you're fighting to oppose Trump care, what you have to do Today, tomorrow, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and the week after that is call your senator. You could visit, by the way, TrumpCareToolkit.org, which is a tool we set up, gives you the whip list of the senators who are on the fence who need to hear from you. Call them every day because McConnell's going to use this break. They're going to be out this next week to cut special deals, to, to, to give them special favors, to win their votes. And they need to hear from people. And believe me, it makes a difference. It really, really does. They get those counts every single day. 
And if the calls come in strong and if the calls come in big, it's going to be very difficult for them to vote for this, even though there's a big party push. And the second thing you got to do is get in their faces. Make sure they see you. Make sure you have local headlines, national headlines uh, showing and seeing people fighting this thing. That's the kind of pressure that needs to be in their faces so they know their constituents are against this, the country is against this. So get out on the streets on those 4th of July parades, the barbecues, the fireworks ceremonies, and show, show that you're in solidarity for keeping health care uh, available to millions of millions of, of Americans. It is literally the most important thing that we can do as a country for our neighbors, for our communities. And you've heard all of those stories of people whose lives, who are frankly alive today because they were able to get health care for the very first time. They were able to see a doctor. They were diagnosed with cancer uh, or some other disease and were able to get treatment and are alive today because of the Affordable Care Act. So if you're asking, what am I going to do this 4th of July recess? There you go. He, that's something you can do. There you go. We'll talk about that and, and much more uh, in politics and, and policy. The Bill Press Show this Thursday, June 29th. I'm Igor Volsky, always fighting for health care, sometimes against Peter Ogburn, I guess. What? Yeah. Mm, stay with us. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash Show. Bill Press Show on this Thursday, June 29th, 2017. All the darts, by the way, are coming for me today. Uh, should have worn like a like some kind of armor around my body, apparently, this morning. Can I just morning. say? Yes, Peter, what do you have to say? I'm so happy Busy with here. the show. I'm busy with the show. I'm happy you're okay. here. You're doing a great job. By the way, some nice comments would be nice at BP show at Igor Volsky. I just tweeted that I'm here so that people can watch uh, and weigh in. We were talking about healthcare, the battle, of course, that is uh, taking over D.C., taking over all the conversation and the divide that's shaping uh, the Democratic Party these days about single payer health care. And should Democrats, as they now possibly move into a negotiating posture with Republicans and how to fix health care, should they put single-payer health care on the table? Uh, please weigh in at Igor Volsky, at BP Show. Peter here will read all of the tweets uh, that support his belief. Only the ones that support me. Yeah, his belief that we'll get to single-payer The The Ogburn agenda. Yeah. Yeah, the Ogburn agenda. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, while we wait for you to weigh in on that... Uh, at Igorowski at BP Show. We're joined here in the studio by politics reporter for Roll Call, Simone Pathé, uh, on Twitter, at SF, uh, SF uh, Pathé. Uh, welcome, Simone. And Thank by you. the way, we discovered during the commercial break that we share a very good mutual friend, 
uh, which has endeared me to Simone uh, almost immediately. <laughs> Sheldon Adelson? No, um, Got it. Is it? No. No? Is no. that Sheldon Adelson? No, no, no. It's a... <laughs> That's awesome. That's cool. That's so cool, yeah. right? Yeah, you, without even knowing that's why that you... No, that's that why you booked her? I don't even yeah. know who you're talking about, but that's why I booked her. <laughs> well, welcome. The producer knows. You. Good, well, you know, that Peter, he produces. Uh, Simone, th- thanks for thanks for being here in this, in this like, what is this, like morning jungle we're having here this morning. Or morning, <laughs> what is it? Morning, it's called a morning morning zoo. zoo. Morning zoo. That's what I was looking for. Animals. It had animals in it, okay? Morning jungle morning is jungle. so much better than morning zoo. Should we should we go with that? I kind of like it. All right. Well, do some branding around it. So yeah. tomorrow when I'm here, but I'm here tomorrow. Uh, well, allegedly. Uh, oh, <laughs> see how this goes. Wow. Okay. I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm Unbelievable. Sorry. Unbelievable. Your support, Addy Gorbel. <laughs> <laughs> be, <laughs> be appreciated, Simone. So speaking of. Democrats fighting back in this Trump era, trying to find their political voice, shall we say. Um, There's certainly great energy out in the streets Mm -hmm. online of people for the first time after the Trump election kind of waking up and saying, this guy doesn't stand for me. I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to enter politics for the first time. I'm going to form new organizations that fight his agenda. I'm going to run for office. Now, we've had several special elections already, which Democrats lost. So what does this mean? Are they bellwethers for what's going to happen in 2018? And what more importantly do they say about the state of the Democratic Party today? Good questions. Um, So the energy that you refer to is real. It absolutely is. And there's no better place to see that than Georgia's 6th District, where we just had the special election last week that you referred to. Democrats came up short, of course. They lost to um, perennial GOP candidate Karen Handel by about four points, um, which was kind of a surprise. You know, John Ossoff had been leading narrowly within the margin of error in most public and private polling up until the election. Um, Anyway, that doesn't necessarily mean that Democrats are, you know, destined to lose everything um, oh, good. 2018. It's, you know, special elections are special. They're not necessarily a harbinger of things to come. If you remember in 2009 and 2010, Democrats felt really good about the fact that they won some specials in the middle of the cycle. And then November 2010 comes around and they lose a whopping 63 something seats. Um, so, you know, whichever way it goes, it's not good to necessarily look at a special election and think, oh, phew, we're fine. Or, oh, shit, we're destined yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, th- I think that one of the big, I mean, there are a lot of takeaways, but I think one of the takeaways from this is just how sort of broken the polling is these days. Mm. Because, like, all indicators, or I shouldn't say all, but a lot of the polling indicated that John Ossoff was, was going to be a closer race than it was. Um, in fact, most of the polls I saw showed that he was up there at the end. Same with uh, Montana, Gianforte, and Quist. It was really close. And then at the end of the day, like it was not a close election at all. South Carolina thought the Republican was going to walk away with it, and that came down to like a matter of a couple thousand votes. So, like, what has happened? And, and, and I mean, we go all the way back to November when everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to walk into the White House, and the polling was way wrong there. So Because the, the debate that's happening in the Democratic Party. Polling had gotten pretty good, though, you know, like in recent years. And now it kind of feels like it's all falling apart. Yeah, polling sucks. But the, the, <laughs> Thank you for the answer to that very complicated question. But, the, but the, debate, the debate I think that Democrats are having, that progressives are having, that uh, there's no easy answer to is... 
what's the balance between resisting and pushing back against Trump and talking about bold progressive ideas for the future? Right. And what what do those ideas feel like? What do they look like? Mm -hmm. And how do you ensure that they appeal to voters who are designed to benefit most from them? Yeah. And we've seen Democrats testing a few different messages in these special elections on Montana. Of course, Rob Quist was much more of a Bernie Sanders mold progressive Democrat than John Ossoff in Georgia, where he had a very moderate, um, almost conservative Democratic uh, mission that, he, you know, he wasn't going to be too critical of Donald Trump. Um, remember, though, that all of these districts where we've had special elections are red districts. You know, they are vacant because of the Trump administration, because he was able to pluck members of Congress out and into his administration. Um, so the fact that Democrats didn't do super well or win, to be frank, in any of these places doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the message in any one of these districts will not again be a message that you'll hear in different districts in 2018. You're right. There's certainly a tension between the, the progressive side of things and the more um, moderate side of the Democratic Party. I think it just depends on the district. Um, you're going to see a lot of more tailored messaging. If you remember last year, Democrats were going all in on Donald Trump in a lot of districts where, frankly, he wasn't that popular, but voters were able to distinguish between him and the incumbent Republican. If you look at someone like Eric Paulson in Minnesota, for example, or John Katko in upstate New York, like they have a Republican brand that is very different from the president's. And yes, it's it's harder to distinguish between the two of them when Trump is no longer a candidate. He's a president. These members have voting records, et cetera. Um, but Democrats have, have seemed to have grasped the idea, if not necessarily put it into place yet, um, that they have to have more of a message than just resisting Donald Trump, that there has to be some sort of coherent economic platform. And did Asif have that message? Like, what was Asif's message? Yeah, so that's a good question. It was kind of nebulous in some ways, yeah. right? I mean, he started out talking more about Trump. He had this Make Trump Furious slogan, which was actually not something he talked about a lot on the campaign right. trail. That actually started as just a fundraising email and sort of got blown out of proportion. On the trail, he talked a lot more about, um, you know, working together, not sending a career politician to Washington, a positive, hopeful message, almost um, resonant of what Obama in 2007, 2008 about hope and sort of these big, broad ideas. Um, and he did have substantial policy platforms behind it. You know, if you went to his website, but like, who's doing that? Voters don't do that. Um, <laughs> so... There are certainly Democrats who say that he should have been way more aggressive going after Karen Handel on the Republican health care bill on Trump as well. Um, Trump, as you know, barely won this district. He won it by less than two points, um, underperforming Republicans vastly from previous elections. The Ossoff campaign has a different opinion on that. They say that the more you nationalize a race, the more things get heated, the more you have outside spending come in. And I, I, I mean, I mean, how much more outside spending? I, I mean, yeah. this was the outside spending. Right. All right. spending from outside. Right. <laughs> went went to Georgia. If you look at South Carolina, though, there was virtually no outside spending. It kind of flew under the radar. Totally under and the radar. Democrats are saying, well, hey, our candidate actually kind of came way closer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that, like, you hit on something interesting there. You cannot just beat up on Donald Trump and no. expect to walk your way no. into office, no. right? You cannot just say, Donald Trump is bad and I am not bad, now vote right. for me. And Democrats say they get that. Okay. You know, people 
people are talking a lot about that. The, the question is, how do they put that? Together? Right, exactly. right, right. So what right. does the That's message the then part. become? <laughs> right. Well, maybe it is. They say in healthcare, single payer, or maybe it is on guns. They say we need fewer guns. We need, uh, you know, assault weapons ban, for instance. I mean, those are kind of bigger, bolder ideas that allow you by just by defining them and just by saying them to distinguish yourself from Trump and and the Republican Party. They are, but I don't think those are things you're going to hear much about in 2018. I mean, or Georgia. It, <laughs> or in Georgia. Right. If you look at the districts that Democrats have to pick up, reminder, they have to net 24 seats to win a majority. These are in a lot of red states. But what about the argument that, I mean, voters do want to obviously hear positions that appeal to them that they agree with, mm. but that they also put value and stock in people with bold positions who are willing to fight for what they believe in, right? Like this is, in some respects, what uh, people saw in Donald Trump, that he was a strong fighter. They may disagree with him, but they know exactly where he stands and he's going to fight for what he thinks is right. George W. Bush also benefited from this kind of mindset. I mean, I think the, the problem with some Democratic candidates is that they have this wishy-washy position and voters don't see them as big, strong leaders. Mm. Yeah, that's certainly a fair point. And I think that's been a knock against Ossoff, too, is that he was kind of wishy-washy. Um, he was kind of a stiff candidate. You know, it wasn't super clear that he was going out there thrashing against Handel. Not necessarily that he should have, but you're right. Some voters were left kind of wondering what he was in there for. Look, we, we were the we were the first ones to throw him under the bus the next morning. Like we were all <laughs> ass off all the time and we were pulling for him. But as soon as as soon as he lost, we knew why he lost. He was a wishy washy candidate. And even I mean I, I, on the single payer thing, he said that we're not gonna get to single payer. He said we're not gonna get to fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. Right. And if you're one of those people who thinks that Democrats didn't run progressive enough candidates or don't run progressive enough candidates, then like yeah, you know why you lost. And so in the aftermath of these losses in the special elections, there is a conversation happening now within the Democratic Party mm -hmm. about whether or not Nancy Pelosi, who's the leader of Democrats in the House, should retain that title. Uh, we saw earlier this year a challenge to her from Tim Ryan, a member from Ohio, arguing that Pelosi has become toxic and doesn't speak or represent voters in Trump country who voted for Trump. Now, to me, you know, they're like, it's like saying, okay, yeah, we would, the Democrats would have won Georgia if there was been some white guy in charge of Democrats in the House. <laughs> Feels a little silly. <laughs> um, but talk to us about what that division is that Democrats are now facing um, and whether there's a possibility that Nancy Pelosi could be pushed out. Yeah. So I think the argument is less about her being in leadership and, and what she does as it is about the symbol she has become. If you look at Republican advertising, you know, for years, it's been tying Democrat X to Nancy Pelosi. Like Half of that is like sexist garbage. It really is. It. it Maybe, but like it's these still attacks, happening. these attack. Have you seen these there's ads? A, there's a reason. I've said this. There's a reason that the two sort of biggest boogeymen for Republicans to beat up on Democrats are Nancy Pelosi and Elizabeth Warren, right? Because they're yeah. women, and it's yeah. it's frankly not that hard to beat up on a woman and get away with it, in right? Public, exactly. In Even in 2017, eye. it's just yeah. not. 
And so Democrats who are critical of Pelosi, you know, they all acknowledge that she's a massive fundraiser. She's a powerhouse for the party. And, and that's all great. And she's helped them do a lot of things. Health care, of course, win elections in the past. But if you look at the mailers and the ads in Georgia, I mean, Congressional yeah. Leadership Fund is a major GOPAC, a GOP, excuse me, super PAC. <laughs> They've spent $7 million in the race, much of that just tying Ossoff to Pelosi. They released polling this week that showed in 11 Republican districts that Democrats are targeting in 2018, Pelosi's favorability numbers are underwater. Now, Democrats would argue that Trumps are slipping as well. So, like, it'll be, you know, a contest between two boogeymen. But (laughs) the point for a lot of Democrats like Ryan is that she is a drag on the party that is trying to articulate a new message. I was talking to an Ohio source yesterday who complained that, you know, the average income in Pelosi's district is about $100,000 more than in his own community in Ohio. And so voters there just don't. Okay, but that would make sense if Nancy Pelosi put forward policies that would benefit the people whose average income is $100,000 more in our district. She clearly does not. It's it's more symbolic, though, right? I mean, people aren't necessarily looking at the particular policies. They're looking at who they think she represents, whether that's true or not. Okay, but are voters looking at Nancy Pelosi, Googling her district and saying, look at the rich people that Nancy Pelosi represents. Clearly, then, she doesn't represent middle and lower income Americans. Tim Ryan, who's average income in his Ohio district is a lot. I just like I don't understand. I don't understand why Democrats feel it's advantageous for them to meet sexist attacks against Nancy Pelosi by saying, let's cast her aside and the strong leader that she's been, particularly when she was Speaker of the House, and put up a generic white man whose message is white middle class people as if there's a difference between what black middle working people want and white working people want. I mean, that to me is outrageous. Um, Who's going to say, who's going to find some message about Rust Belt jobs um, and and win? Like, to me, that, that makes no sense at all. That makes no sense at all. I agree, if that's the way that you look at it, that that makes no sense. I will say, I think that Nancy Pelosi has done so much good stuff for the Democratic Party that she gets not nearly enough credit for. And we talk a lot about Mitch McConnell and his number one goal is serving the Republicans. And Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi served the Democrats very, very, very well. She's also served under three different presidents. Um, and she's been in there for a long time. And I think it's time, really, truly, I think it's time for the Democrat. And I'm not, I'm not caping for Tim Ryan necessarily. I just think that whoever it is, um, it, it might be time for Nancy Pelosi to just sort of like step out of leadership. I'd be fine with that. You think Nancy Pelosi is more toxic than Donald Trump? You know what? The honest answer is, in some areas of the country, yes, she is. That That, that is true. I like it or not, I, I do think that's a true statement. You might not like it, but that is a true statement. In some parts of the country, people hate Nancy Pelosi so goddamn much. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't Democrat. think that Democrats and progressives are going to make progress for issues that impact uh, disproportionately women and African-Americans by backing away from Nancy Pelosi. I don't think they will. And if that's the ultimate goal, then that's a fight, a strong fight that Democrats should be having, in my opinion. I think that's a fair point. I will also say we should probably start thinking about the next generation here. Oh, pretty, sure. No, of course. Naturally, quickly. naturally. Pretty quickly. But that's, I mean, but that's also like not the conversation that's happening with Democrats. No. The conversation isn't, you know, we need younger leaders. The question is, do we need Nancy Pelosi or do we need like Tim Ryan? 
That's the conversation I'm having. Savior of the party, Tim Ryan, by the way. People are sitting watching TV in the Midwest and in the South, and they're like, these guys still aren't getting it. They're, 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 they're obsessed with Donald Trump. Who was that? It's Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan. Yeah. Savior, huh? <laughs> you know, I, if he had, I mean, I have nothing against, I, he, I think I did the show with him once here. Uh, I have nothing against him. I just don't think he has any compelling message at all. I don't know what his message, what is Tim Ryan's message? Tim Ryan's message is bringing <laughs> the party together okay. and not, um, not sectioning the message into different interest groups, right? And not having a message to women, to African-Americans, to gay and lesbians, to the environmental community. It's it's trying to get everyone on the same page, recognizing that at the basic level, everyone wants a job and using that as a starting point. I was on the road with him in South Carolina. It was really interesting to watch him go from talking to a very Republican country club crowd in which he said something like, the best social program is a job, um, and then totally switching gears and going to these fish fries in the African-American community in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and then trying to talk to voters there about jobs, too. And and in both places, his message was pretty much the same. I mean, tailored a little bit to fit his audience. But he seems to think that that is the winning strategy. I mean, it's not as if Democrats have not been talking about jobs yeah, or economics. Right. Like, So I think the question is, Okay, what are they going to do that's different? How are they going to message this differently? What kind of rhetoric are they going to use? Who are they talking to? And who are going to be the people who are going to do that talking? Yeah. I mean, I guess I... I, uh, You know, to me, talking to different constituencies within America who've been impacted by policies differently, who've had different advantages and disadvantages, who've benefited in different ways from government programs and government initiatives and to ensure that African-Americans or women or um, the, the Hispanic Latino community or LGBT Americans have policies that specifically benefit them and lift them up is a core tenet of progressivism. And I'm sure if you talk to Tim Ryan, he wouldn't disagree with that. I guess he would just say that the messaging right. has to be more inclusive. But the question is, in that inclusive messaging, do you, by de-emphasizing the specific groups, do you then come out with policies that um, that benefit them less than if you target them specifically, which I think is, is how Democrats have been operating uh, for the last couple of years? No, no clear answer on that. Yeah, I think that's a fair question. I just think, I just am not sure that uh, that... Nancy Pelosi doesn't do that. I mean, Nancy Pelosi talks about jobs a lot, but you can do both at the same time. You can talk about jobs for everybody, but then you could talk about how, you know, African-Americans have suffered since uh, the, the section of the Voting Rights Act has been repealed, for instance, or from disproportionately are going to suffer from the housing cuts that are in the Republican budget. I mean, you you can do both and recognize that people in America, depending on where they live and who they are, are impacted and interact with policies differently. I mean, you can, people can can believe and hear that conversation it can resonate with them that right. you fight for them you fight for everybody but you also fight for them individually and you recognize that they have you know d different needs and um need different things to get ahead right certainly and i don't think that ryan or seth moulton or ruben gallego or kathleen rice or any of these democrats of the next generation who are um 
advocating for Pelosi to step aside. I don't think they would disagree with that. I think the point goes to what Peter referred to before, and that is that Pelosi, whether she deserves it or not, is just so vilified in so many districts. I mean, the ads in Georgia that CLF ran, they were shot in San Francisco. Like, yeah. <laughs> like they went all out <laughs> to make this argument. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can argue about whether that's what sunk Ossoff or not, but it was certainly a $7 million component of that race. So where do you see her future? Like, how serious is this threat to her grip on, on the leadership yeah, post? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, as of right now, we don't know anyone who is saying they're going to raise their hand to contest her. I mean, So Tim Ryan's, like, not mounting a challenge? I don't think so. When I asked him in South Carolina, he said he wasn't ruling it out. He said he didn't know. But then on Meet the Press this past weekend, he said, I don't want to run against Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't mean he's not going to run. I may but... be called to do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He wants to. <laughs> so who knows? Um, but it would be pretty unprecedented to have her forced out in the middle of a of a term um, of an you know election cycle. Usually that happens like right after the midterms or whatever. So we'll see. We will see. Uh, Simone Pethe, politics reporter for Roll Call. Thank you so much for joining us on this morning jungle of a Bill Press show on Thursday, June 29th. Igor Volsky, back at you in just a couple of minutes at BP Show at Igor Volsky. Stay with us. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Bill Press Show on this Thursday, June 29th, 2017. Where have the days gone that we're almost in July? July 4th weekend. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to uh, a crazy Thursday. We're calling it Morning Jungle here on the show, <laughs> mostly because, you know, I'm, I'm here guest hosting for Bill, Peter Ogburn, here in studio, uh, has been attacking me all morning long for my refusal to um, support uh, single-payer health care, like, immediately. You know, I just want, like, a more gradual kind of thing. Peter's telling me that I want to see people die if I um, don't want to flip the switch to it tomorrow. Ooh. And it's been a little tense here in the studio, frankly. Uh, you've also been weighing in at Igor Volsky, at BP Show, siding mostly with me, which I appreciate. Um, Peter has been reading some of your comments on air, uh, leaving out all of the good ones you're sending to me. So, um, Jamie, can you please tell Igor that I think he's doing a good job because I'm not speaking to him right now? So if you could just please yeah, tell him, I think he's doing a, it's getting a, a real, good enough job. Mr. Volsky, Mr. Yeah. Ogburn has a message for you. He says you're doing a pretty good job pretty good on job. the show this morning. All right. Congratulations. Well. 
Well, I I guess I, I appreciate that. We'll see if I come back tomorrow. I'm supposed to come back tomorrow. Yeah, but the way the yeah, the way things are going here. Second hour could save it. Oh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We're joined, no by the way, uh, second hour here with my friend Mark Glaze, a senior advisor to our group Guns Down, where we call for and fight for fewer guns in America. We just saw, was it three weeks ago now, the shooting in Alexandria, and folks thought, well, maybe this is an opportunity to finally talk about guns, and then, of course, nobody did. Right, right. <laughs> By the way, I feel like I've walked into a, a marital spat here. Yeah. Is there anything, you I, can, have. anything, yeah. anything I can do to soothe? Mark, it's nice feathers. to see you. <laughs> 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 anyway, we'll get to uh, the gun debate, uh, the politics of the day, but first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Now, this is remarkable, I think. We talked about the uh, Affordable Care Act this morning. The Journal of the American Heart Association took a look at instances of cardiac arrests. Yeah. Turns out... There has been a 17% drop in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest since the ACA oh, went into Oh, effect. it's been working, wow. Peter? It ACA has, has been fact, working. It has, in fact, been working. There's a lot of factors. There are a lot of factors that go into this, of course. But, like, when you're not so scared to go to the doctor and keep up with that type of stuff, you can go and do that. Yes. And so people who have the Affordable Care Act were actually seeing about their heart health. A 17% drop in a seven-ish year period is pretty remarkable. Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty wow, good. That's great. And if I have a minute, I would actually analogize this yeah. the debate over single single payer in the ACA to the gun debate. And I'm going to weigh in on Peter's side, so just be, be prepared. Oh, man. So pl- placing aside for a moment the question about whether you think single payer is good policy, those who think single payer would be good policy ought to make the case for it. Yeah, because, that I don't disagree with. Yeah, it's, that you I don't know, disagree as, with. as we know, the only way you ever change the numbers on anything is to forthrightly make the case yes. and help and help bring people along to your cause. Same, same thing is happening in in the gun debate. We all sort of basically concede that because there are more guns in the country, there there are people. At some point, we have to find a way to reduce the number of guns and make them harder to get. That starts to sound scary to some people, even though they think it's good public policy. So they avoid issues like maybe we shouldn't have every Tom, Dick, and Harry with an assault rifle and a high-capacity ammunition magazine in the country. The best way never to move the conversation and never to move the numbers on those things that most people actually think we ought to do is we got to talk about them. We got to make the case, and that's where guns down comes in. Exactly. Oh, so how See smooth. How I, See how I did that. Media professional. I don't disagree. I think single payer should be on the table. We should talk about it. States should experiment with it, and they can under the ACA. But we can't flip the switch, folks. We simply can't. People's lives are at stake. Right. Radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. That's right, Bill Press Show. I'm Igor Volsky sitting in for Bill Press. Good morning, good morning. Here with Mark Glaze, senior advisor to our group Guns Down on Twitter at Mark C. Glaze. And visit us online, by the way, gunsdownamerica.org. That's gunsdown.org. 
AmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmericaAmerica
I think the strategy of asking for only the things that have 90 to 95% public approval, which admittedly would save a lot of lives and we should do them, is not only not helping us pass those laws, it's actually undermining the bigger case we need to be making, which is that even if you passed a pretty Loctite universal background check bill tomorrow, which we might well do after another cataclysmic mass shooting, if a flaw in the background check system was implicated, that would, that would save a lot of lives and we should absolutely do it. It would not come close to cutting into the problem, the, the problems that arise when you have 300 million guns out there. Yeah. The Australia example is really quite fascinating because before the shooting, Australia had a gun culture that was similar to that of the right. United States. Right. They had NRA type organizations. The NRA would fly into Australia and like coach them how yeah. to be more like the NRA. And the Christian coalition. And the Christian coalition. And then that horrible, horrible shooting happened. And the prime minister, who I name I now unfortunately don't remember. Do you remember his name? I think Turnbull? No, I don't, I, but it could be. Uh, the Australian Prime Minister, who was friends with the Bush family hmm. and was a conservative politician, went around the country and, say, and said, this really changes everything, and used the American model as an example right. of what Australia doesn't want to become. Yes. And gave speeches all across the country saying we can't become America when it comes right. to guns. We can't have the same kind of problems here. Th that's John absolutely Howard. right. John yeah. Howard, thank you. Oh, nice thank you. Nice wow, Was it, where, is there a peanut gallery behind you? <laughs> <laughs> it's just Jamie. People are always <laughs> Wikipedia <laughs> represented. Um, yeah, and you know they they had they had a robust debate. Robust I mean, debate. They, they have a they have a wild west just like we do, and there were many people there who were opposed to it. But basically, they made the democratic decision to do this, and it has worked. The, the, look, the thing I think we have to come around to. Do you remember that speech? I think it was at one of the Republican national conventions that Dick Cheney had um, uh, gave, and he said, I think it was his, his acceptance of his nomination as vice president. He said, "We tried it their way; it failed. It's time for them to leave." Time for them to go. I sort of feel that way about the gun lobby. Mm. You know, we, we we should think of ourselves. If only they would leave. Right. <laughs> we, look, we should. I think we should come to a point where we think of ourselves as having run a grand experiment in public policy, and the results of that study are in, and they're catastrophic. You know, we have basically tried it the NRA's way, which is more guns make us safer, an armed society is a polite society, and the result has been anything but that. You know, we our gun homicide rate is, I should say, gun fatality rate is 25 times that of the United Kingdom and other European countries. And it's not because we're angrier. It's not because our politics are necessarily tougher. It's not because we're more seriously mentally ill. It's not because our health care is worse, though sometimes our health care is worse. It's because, of <laughs> it's because of differences in the way we regulate guns. Yeah. By the way, gunsdownamerica.org, gunsdownamerica.org. If you want to read the poll, read uh, some of the other work there. And on Twitter, at gunsdownamerica as well. Uh, Mark, the shooting in Alexandria three weeks ago, uh, a man shot into a baseball field hitting uh, Congressman Saliz uh, and a few others. He's still in the hospital. Uh, thankfully, no fatalities. There were trained, trained police right. officer, officers on screaming, the scene. Screaming for reinforcements because they were seriously outgunned by a guy with a high-capacity magazine. That's right. The response to that incident... I think was Lack, lackluster. Yeah, lackluster, uh, and both t and telling also, particularly from Democrats uh, who, after the shooting, 
told reporters, and these are people like, you know, uh, Chris Murphy, who's a leader in the guns movement, uh, uh, a couple of other prominent Democrats, uh, Dianne Feinstein, who said, mm, now is not the time right. to talk about guns. You know, our colleague is in the hospital. Uh, we're not going to revive the guns. Debate. This after Democrats sat on the House floor right. to try to move um, a gun con conversation forward. What do you think was different about this shooting that they didn't even want to talk about the problem? Yeah, you know, you tell me. There are probably a couple of things. One of was, of course, it's a colleague, and they actually know and like this man as they. But all as the more should. reason, all the more reason to discuss policies that would prevent right. other colleagues from getting shot. Right. Look, right. At, look. If I were they, I, I, I don't think it's rocket scientists to figure out what the message is there. Of course, Steve Scalise and the others who were wounded have our thoughts and prayers. But now it's time to figure out what flaws in our laws facilitated this shooting. Look, when when there's an incident that may be. Uh, terrorist in nature. We don't sort of put a pin in it while we mourn the dead to figure out what went wrong with security, what may be wrong with our laws. That we have that conversation right away, and we, it's we're rewarded for it. We have that conversation immediately, and we should. And I think we're long past the point where we should immediately have a conversation about you know the fact that just anybody is allowed to walk into a dealership in Virginia and yeah. buy a couple of assault rifles and take them to a place where congressmen cannot reasonably be expected to be carrying guns to defend themselves as they race around the bases practicing for a congressional baseball game. It's not realistic to think that's ever going to be a good answer. By the way, just out of curiosity, did you guys on the show here talk about gun safety in the aftermath of the shooting? I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just interested. Does progressive media talk about guns and, and restricting guns in the aftermath of a shooting? Or are we in a place where we maybe feel, oh, there's nothing that can be done and we don't even have the conversation? We talked about it afterwards. We said that they, I, no matter what this guy's political affiliation or belief is, like nobody should be able to have access to a gun like that. Right. I mean, the, the, the stories, the original accounts or the, the early accounts was that he was well far away from his intended targets. And they weren't even sure where the shots were coming from at first because he had a high-powered rifle and he was right. shooting essentially from his car well off of the field. Right. And, like, I don't care who you are. You shouldn't have a gun like that. Right. And, look, one in fairness, I think, but it's a little bit concerning, I think one reason why the conversation didn't immediately turn to gun violence prevention or as I sometimes insist on still calling it gun control since that's actually... Uh-oh. Well, it's going to get in trouble with a lot of people, Mark. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I disassociate myself from gun, guns down. Any positions guns down may have on the matter. But look, I, I, think there, I think there is a certain amount of progressive exhaustion in the era of Trump, which is both totally understandable and also a little concerning. There are 30 things that any American is worried about today and is concerned that might happen. And I think there is probably a natural, a natural filtering process whereby people choose to focus their energies on things that they think they can actually stop, like the abolishment of Obamacare, rather than things that with, with large Republican mm -hmm. majorities, it is clear we are not regrettably going to do. Yeah. Now, 
at Guns Down America, uh, we not only talk about uh, why the NRA is so wrong, uh, as you mentioned, this idea that a good guy with a gun can stop everybody, and point out that most Americans actually want big, bold solutions and fewer guns in America, but we also uh, run campaigns that highlight the absurdity of what the NRA and the gun lobby is doing, and that is... uh, Especially true in the case of a new product the National Rifle Association has started offering called Carry Guard Insurance. Mark, what is Carry Guard? Um, Carry Guard Insurance, which we are thinking of as murder insurance yes. because we think that way. Um, <laughs> That's just how we think. Is, is closely linked to, uh, to the passage and implementation of so-called stand your ground laws, which we sometimes call license to murder laws, uh, which people started to, started to recognize after the Trayvon Martin shooting when George Zimmerman deployed that, deployed that law. It basically says if, you, if, if, you merely, if you're out in public, if you're anywhere, um, and you claim to f- feel threatened, there is basically, you know, that is basically a get out of jail free card. It vastly expands your right to self-defense in a way that we know is, is increasing sharply unjustified murders, in our view. This insurance would, would actually give uh, shooters in those circumstances not just liability insurance, which there are some good public policy arguments that all gun carriers ought to have. It would also pay for things like cleanup costs Mm -hmm. to clean up the scene, and it would pay for criminal defense, which is really an outrage. And if we thought about this the way free market people think about it, basically this product incentivizes murder. Yeah, yeah, and says that if you murder somebody under this umbrella of stand your ground that you were just simply defending yourself that were on your property, whatever the case may be, having that insurance as kind of a safety blanket may lead you to believe, well, yeah, I'll be covered. And and the 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 blood stain on my white rug Right. That, too, will be taken care of. Right. And, and look, I'll, I, I, I will be more blunt, perhaps, than you will. Part of the objective here is to is to discourage people from buying this product. But I think the bigger objective here is to shame mainstream companies who are doing business with the NRA, which, in my view, is more or less directly responsible for tens of thousands of deaths and injuries in this country every year because they resolutely refuse even the little things like universal background checks. People who think that the NRA is a warm and fuzzy hunters and sportsmen organization, which it once was once decades was. ago. That's how it started. That's how it started. It's not that anymore. It's it's a, principally a marketing organization, and its flagship product is fear, yeah. making and, people afraid. And that's a good point. And by the way, those two large insurance companies that offer this carry guard murder insurance are Ch- Chubb and Lockton, uh, and we're now running a campaign against them. But that point of fear is a good one, right? Because it's one thing to say gun owners should have insurance in the same way that a car owner should have insurance that would protect you um, and would also help pay for uh, the costs of those injured, right? right? That's how we think of insurance. This is really quite the opposite. This pays the costs of criminal defense, the criminal defense and the person doing the injury. Yes, exactly. I'm glad you clarified that. That's exactly right. They've sort of flipped flipped what would make sense. Flipped it. And the other point is the NRA, as as Mark points out, and and, uh, Peter, I'm sure you, this outrages you as well, speaks to an audience and um, builds fear in an audience, mostly against, and let's just be very honest and clear about this, 
black and brown people. And how do we know that? <laughs> we know that in lots of different ways, yeah. including, including the shadowy ads in which there is a criminal other who is usually a, a, a dark-complected person. Here, here, here are two facts that help us out. Uh, last year, the uh, Harvard, I think it was the Kennedy School, released a big survey on attitudes toward guns. And not particularly surprisingly, they found that the number one reason people buy guns is fear of other yeah. Meaning, if you're going to have a robust market and make a lot of money, you have got to keep selling more and more guns to more and more people. The business model of the NRA and of the industry is not to sell me one gun. It is to sell people who really are into their guns, lots of guns. And the way they and do that, working, is it, and it's working, is inspiring fear and paranoia. Here's a great data point. I would highly recommend you check out if you haven't because it is astonishing viewing. But Dana Loesch, who is the very aggressive, mm -hmm. a very aggressive oh, yeah. NRA spokesperson NRA with, who, spokesperson. with whom you may be yeah. familiar, who yes. is who is very good at her job, which involves a lot of dishonesty, but placing that aside, released this amazing recruitment video for the NRA in which, you know, there's all this grainy footage of mobs um, and grainy footage of protests at Ferguson and places like that, basically saying, you know, there are thugs uh, and gangs and terrorists who are making our lives dangerous. And when the police try and step in and help us, we riot. Yeah. Yep. It is astonishing. I, uh, Last August, went out to uh, Nevada, Nevada. Yes. Never know how you say that state's Nevada. name. Nevada. Nevada. In Colorado. Yeah, to a uh, big shooting range out there yeah. to handle a gun. I took a two-day handgun course um, to really kind of, you know, feel a weapon in my hand, see what it's like. I was, I was doing some research out there. Did and you this, like it? I have to tell you, honestly, I had no feelings about it. Yep. I didn't like it, but I also didn't hate it. Right. It just felt like something I was doing. So I, I actually like it. Are you surprised? You've told me that you <laughs> don't mind a gun in your hands. Um, but, uh... <laughs> I, understand, I understand that. Like, I haven't in a very, very, like I did when I was a kid because we, we, we had, my family were all hunters, right? But, like, I haven't in a long time, like, held a gun and shot it. I totally get why people get off on yeah, it. It's yeah, it's fun. Yeah. I get that. But I went out there. Uh, it was part of it was the actual technique of shooting and aiming and all that. And another part of it was a lecture series on um, why we have guns, how to secure your gun, all these kinds of things. And I was sitting there, and I think this was in day two, and they were talking about responsibly using your weapon. It was a PowerPoint presentation, a large room, maybe uh, 3,000 people. It's a very big range, by the way. And on the screen, they began explaining that the world is a very dangerous place and that anywhere you turn, there could be someone with a gun. And to show you what these gun threats look like, they put on the screen pictures of three different people, <laughs> a black person, a Hispanic person, and some other kind of person who had all kinds of tattoos on them and right. was clearly resembling right. somebody in a gang. Right. And then they put on screen people who, um, who are not threats to you, and those were innocent-looking white people. Right, right. Uh, and that, to me, just really underlined what this entire industry is about and how they sell their weapons and how they make money for gun manufacturers which is telling Americans every single day that uh, your life is in danger, you need to protect yourself, when, of course, we know all of the data 
is says the exact opposite that right. if you own a gun you're much more likely to actually use that gun on yourself exactly or for it to be used in an accident yeah. suicide for it to be stolen and used against you but i i have come to think of the of the nra's marketing slash gun sales strategy as having two parts the first is to kind of deploy the forces of systemic racism and prejudice to underscore the false belief that crime in America most often has a black or brown face, which is statistically not true. And the second is to stoke uh, anger and paranoia about government tyranny. There's going to come a day, they say, when you're going to want to have that gun to protect your rights, yep. your home, your safety. Um, how do we know that? Well, lots of reasons. But for one thing, the NRA is out with new merch, which I will I will rush to my... <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you wearing some Rush to my laptop to buy. But, <laughs> but the T-shirt says... The NRA because you can't fist fight tyranny. Uh, wow. Uh, yeah. And my dad was one of these guys, by the way. I mean, he's a pretty reasonable guy, but back in the, you know, it was Colorado, it was in the mountains, hunting, fishing, rugged and rugged individualism. And there was sort of a strain running through the conversation of my dad and, and his other white friends of government is not your friend. You know, I, I, that is something that a lot of people brought up the Rand Paul tweet in the days after the the congressional baseball right. shooting that Rand Paul had said, you know, essentially we have guns not for hunting but for when the government becomes tyrannical, right. which there's some debate over what context that was set in, but it, it appears as though he was tweeting it. Um, and I've heard that a lot over the years. Yeah. And, like, you really have to break that down, right? That means if that is your argument, which a lot of – conservative people have said over the years, if that is your argument, that means you're going to have to use your gun on politicians, police, or military. Right. Right. I mean, it's it, some people are sort of calling it what I think it is, which is insurrection. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. Yeah. So, like, yeah, I just don't, I don't know how they're going to keep going on with that. Yeah, and look, to be again, to be fair, this happens on both sides. I mean, when when Obama was president, there were lots of people who thought that it was the end of the country as we yeah. knew it. And, and he way, sold and, a lot of guns for the NRA. He sold a lot yeah, of guns for did. the NRA. That now that Trump is in, now that Trump is in office, gun sales are actually down for the most part in the in the in the main. Um, there are a lot of people on the left who are really concerned about what the government might do to them. Yeah. Um, this conversation happens, and yeah. one, of the, one of the reasons we don't talk about guns as effectively as we should is we don't listen to the other side as much as we should. I'm a firm believer that I should watch more Fox News than I do because because I learn things. Yeah. It's so painful okay. these days, though. And this conversation is out there that you're yeah. going to take up arms against your own government, a government, by the way, which is owned lock, stock, and barrel nationwide by the GOP. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mark, let's highlight some of the other numbers in this poll uh, at Guns Down America, gunsdownamerica.org. Um, I, I don't think surprising to me, but surprising to a lot of people that not only do Americans support, as we mentioned, background checks, uh, assault weapons ban, but also we tested this buyback program, the buyback buyback provision that was so effective in Australia a majority of Americans think it may be a good idea. Yeah, sixty-eight percent of sixty-eight uh, percent of sixty-nine percent of likely voters. Nice. Fifty-two percent of gun owners believe that we should ban them, which which is less than was less support than was the case when we actually did ban them for a mm -hmm. period in the yep. in the nineties and early two thousands. But it's it's getting there, and it's surprisingly high, and it is growing. It's gotten significantly higher over the past couple of years. The number of people who think that. We should buy them back. Buy the guns back. Which has been a pretty effective 
It's been very, it's been very effective in Australia. Still, large majority support among likely voters, sixty-two percent, and interestingly, forty-eight percent of gun owners think that we ought to do that. I mean, almost half of people in gun-owning households would support some kind of buyback program to get guns off the street, reduce violence in this country. That's not a conversation you hear among Democrats, Democrats running for office. I mean, what you hear from Democrats running for office is, I support gun reform, which really could mean anything. I mean, the NRA also supports gun reform, by the way, only they want more guns. So we got to get a lot more specific. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I I hand it to conservatives and to the NRA and to Republicans for doing advocacy of this kind really well. There's there's a fun concept in political communications theory called the Overton window, which is basically the, 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 the things that it's socially acceptable and politically acceptable to talk about at a snapshot in time. The only way you move that window and allow more topics into it is by actually having a conversation that at the leading edge is actually quite unpleasant. Here's a good example. The NRA about a decade ago, a little bit more, came up with the idea that we ought to be able to carry guns in schools. You know, mm. ha- having Deputizing first grade teachers to have gunfights over our six-year-old's heads was, thought, was thought to be a what good idea. Go they were laughed out of conservative state houses like Kansas. The bill passed but was vetoed by conservative governors like Jan Brewer. Today, they're passing those laws, and the way they do it is by forcing the conversation, which eventually, sooner than you think, normalizes the conversation. LGBT rights is another issue where public support grew astonishingly quickly, and the reason was the advocates who ran that issue were smart, and they started saying, we don't want half measures, we don't want civil unions, we want marriage, and we accept that we will lose in some places and take step backwards, but the arc of justice moves in the right direction, and they were right, and they moved... They moved the Overton window to include marriage equality. We can do the same on guns, but not until we act like we have the courage of our convictions. Yeah. Moving the Overton window, Mark Glaze, <laughs> senior advisor <laughs> to Guns Down, GunsDownAmerica.org, Guns Down America on Twitter. I'm Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press, back to talk health care. Some more. Mm. Stay with us. You feel confident in his real understanding of this issue? Well, I, I get the sense that, uh, you know, this, this issue is maybe not the president's wheelhouse, health care. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. That's right. Subscribe there on YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Also, follow us on Twitter at BP Show, at Igor Volsky. Uh, I'm Igor Volsky uh, here filling in for Bill Press on this Thursday, June 29th, 2017. Now, a lot of you know I uh, love me some healthcare talk. I started my career in politics covering thinking watching healthcare hearings. And so any chance I get to really kind of geek out about healthcare policy, I take it. And with me now to join in the geeking is Sam Berger. He is the former senior health policy advisor for President Obama's Domestic Policy Council and senior policy advisor at uh, the Center for American Progress, where Sam and I work together. Uh, Follow him on Twitter, by the way, at Sam Berger. Under dash DC was Sam Berger taken 
you came late to Twitter. Oh, Somebody yeah. took Sandberger. The thing is, when you're in the administration, you you're kind of uh, you're not doing the Twitter then, and so then I, I was a little bit late. Yeah. But you seem to that's be the, the only Sam Berger in DC, which yeah. is which is nice. That's good. Yeah, or there's a very very upset <laughs> Sam Berger in DC uh, was listening to your show and it's just shaking shaking just, just his day just got ruined. So it's unfortunate. Oh man. So Sam, yesterday the New York Times, uh, late last night, posted an article arguing that maybe Republicans are moving towards the possibility of negotiating with Democrats on health care mm. reform. They can't do this on their own. They don't have the votes to repeal a bill and replace it with a tax cut for the rich. So perhaps um, they will bring Chuck Schumer into the room and have some kind of negotiation. I think What's unclear now in the public debate is where Democrats are on health care reform. Mm -hmm. They've passed the Affordable Care Act. They worked hard to implement it. They now recognize that there's problems in the law, partly because Republicans have worked so hard to sabotage it over the years since 2010, but also because there's some structural things that really do need fixing. So let's have this policy conversation. Where are Democrats and progressives when they say, let's fix the ACA? What exactly are they talking about? Yeah, so I think there's sort of two different parts. There's the short term and the long term. Uh, the short term is really just removing this uncertainty that's been created uh, by the current administration. You talked about this a little bit, but in essence, Donald Trump has threatened to withhold billions of dollars in payments from insurers. He's threatened to not enforce the individual mandate. This is causing premiums to jump. So as a short term matter, you would you would have Congress basically say, no, we're going to pay insurers what they're owed for keeping people's premiums or excuse me, keeping people's deductibles and copays lower. You might also think about a reinsurance program. This is to help sort of cover some of the high-cost people. One of the things in healthcare is a lot of costs come from a few high-cost folks. So that would help insurers sort of deal uh, uh, with some of the premiums, keep premiums down a little bit. That's a short term. And really stabilize the markets. The markets are, are new. They've been around for, what, four or five years. And so the idea is insurers need some time to figure out how they're going to price the product. And over the short term, you're going to have this kind of reinsurance mechanism. Yes. And I think also when we're talking about stabilizing, we're really talking about removing the uncertainty that's been created in the last year. I mean, we've been moving very quickly towards a stable market. You know, we did see a very large price jump in uh, 2017, and that was partially insurers figuring out how to price in this new market, a yeah. market in which they had to take everybody in, in which they weren't competing not to cover people, but were competing to cover folks at a, at a good price. So, And then, of course, everything sort of went off the rails. So that's sort of the short term, kind of basically mm -hmm. undoing what the current administration is doing, yep. get us back to there. But I think on a, a long-term basis, there's a couple areas you'd want to look at. I think everybody talks about, or many, many people talk about a public option, which I think is an excellent idea. Uh, it does a couple things. It, it makes sure that you have competition. So we have good competition in the Affordable Care Act, but there's still some areas where you don't see it. You have sort of uh, longstanding insurers that kind of have a hold on the market, and they don't have the same incentives to be innovating, to be offering good prices, that sort of thing. And then, of course, you have some areas that just aren't very well served. Um, they're always trying to figure out how they can get an insurer in there. These tend to be rural areas um, where it's more expensive to provide care to folks. So a public option would let us bring prices down, also make sure that everybody has coverage. And the idea is that it would provide insurance more efficiently than private insurers. That's part of the competitive advantage, mm -hmm. theoretically, with a public option. And also the reimbursement rate 
would be, uh, shall we say, more tightly controlled than with a private insurer. Yeah, and I think those are some of the dials that you would talk about. Yeah. And I think that could affect where its price point is. In some cases, though, it would literally be just another insurer able to get into a market, right? In some of these places, places that see very high costs, there are insurers that have long-term strangleholds on that market, and that's part of the reason the costs are so high. It's very difficult for someone new to break in and basically force them to bring prices down. But in addition to that, you are right. You could have a system that works more efficiently. Obviously, you could get some innovation out of that um, system. And so I think that's a, a very popular idea and for a very good reason. I think that's something that would be very helpful in the uh, the affordable care. And in some areas of the country, you have very powerful providers who are able to charge very high prices. Mm-hmm. And in those areas, even having a public option within the market competing won't really have a, a huge impact. I mean, what is being done about that, about the power of providers in certain areas, for instance, like Massachusetts, which are very, very expensive, certainly some of the best hospitals, but also drive up costs really astronomically? Because, you know, folks have to realize a cost for a procedure in one part of the country can be very different than in another part of the country because of the way our healthcare system is structured. Yeah. So I think Part of that is transparency. Part's also what you talked about, though, you know, whether if you had a public option, sort of where the reimbursement rate is. Obviously, large government programs get better rates than a lot of private insurers. Now, that's a kind of a touchy <laughs> touchy issue for a lot of uh, providers, obviously, because you're talking about reducing the amount of money they're making. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, uh, you would see them push back, you know, pretty firmly against that. But that would be some of the things that you could consider. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting, you know, sort of, it's been a while since we've been having conversations like this where we're talking about here's a healthcare system. It's like what so are the, refreshing, right? To have what are the, yeah, what are the actual <laughs> what are the actual problems in our healthcare yeah, system? Yeah. Where are the places we could improve instead of you know do we think that 22 million people should have insurance or not have insurance, which is sort of where the debate is today. Um, but you know there are a lot of a lot of steps you could take. I think the second thing that I would say in terms of improving the Affordable Care Act, improving the individual insurance market is the subsidies. You know, um, there's a couple of things you can do. Obviously, there are a few glitches, you know, family glitch issues like that. But I think also increasing the generosity of the subsidies. So one of the things when this bill was passed was uh, every every single dollar was paid for. That was a very important aspect of it. Now, it tur- and there was deficit reduction, yeah, too. Yeah, there was. And it turns out, in fact, it's come in under budget, way under budget, in part because of a lot of the reforms that have driven down the cost of of healthcare or slowed the growth of, of healthcare costs. These are like delivery system reforms and some other changes to how providers are paid to incentivize exactly. more efficient care. Exactly. Bundled payments, yep. that sort of thing. Um, so it's actually well under budget. And so there's money there that could be used to make the subsidies more generous. That would help people not only afford plans, but make plans even more affordable. And, and I think you could see sort of two things. You could kind of expand within the range of people that are already getting subsidies. And you could think about uh, expanding the income level at which people get subsidies uh, to help mm-hmm. more folks. You know, some of the some of the issues around high deductibles, high premiums, that's really affecting folks uh, that aren't getting these subsidies. They're a little bit higher up uh, on the income scale. But we could certainly think about trying to to reduce their costs further as well. And and I think those are the kinds of conversations that we should be having. That would be interested to be having and, and kind of figuring out how we can get more folks both to have care and more folks that are having care to have it take a little bit less out of their pocket. Mm-hmm. Let's put another big policy on the table. This is one that Democrats and progressives have 
really organized around, have built some energy around, and that's the idea of single-payer mm -hmm. health care. We saw Vermont try to pass single-payer health care. The ACA, we should note, has uh, a provision within it that allows states to qualify for waivers and try to structure a different kind of system. That's a way through which states can experiment with single payer under current law. They may need some additional waivers and flexibility from the secretary to fully do that. But um, address this issue about um, is single payer ultimately the holy grail of kind of progressive health care policy? Um, and then what are what certainly what, what are the benefits of it and what are some of the challenges that switching from a multi-payer system to a single-payer uh, system will face as a country. Sure. So I think, obviously, there's a, a lot to be said for single-payer, uh, even simply, you know, removing uh, private insurers and some, you know, kind of uh, getting a system that's more efficient, that's, you know, really focused on making sure that everybody's getting the best uh, possible coverage. Um, and I think, you know, people frequently say this, but it's true, you know, if we could start from scratch... There's a lot to be said there. I think the major issue with it, well, there are sort of two major issues. Um, one is cost, and some of that is just figuring out, you know, exactly how much care you want to provide. And is that payers. a one-time cost? I mean, the the switch from multi-payer uh, multi to single-payer. Well, it's it's a couple different costs. I mean, so obviously there's a transition cost, but I'm talking more about, you know, exactly what the cost is that we're going to be when we're how much of that paying we're going to be doing right so mm -hmm. what kinds of things are going to be covered what kinds of things aren't are you going to have a private insurance market that sort of sits on top right that lets people get supplemental coverage um which is probably you know something that you might want to consider i think the big thing though is this transition issue yes right i mean you're talking about 150 million people on uh employer coverage and this is a significant significant change um, and people's and, lives are at risk. Yeah, I, and I think so. It's, you got to get the right. <laughs> you got you, yes. You, well, it's people's lives are at risk. Certainly, um, I think also people really they like their healthcare coverage. You know, most people in employer plans, and it's gonna it can be shocking. It'll be a shock to the system. And so, thinking about how you would do that, how you would make that transition, I think is is very important. I do think the Affordable Care Act. One of the benefits of it is that it does build on the existing system. It's sort of make sure that we're bringing more people in rather than kind of shaking the whole thing up. Um, I certainly understand why anyone who's dealt with our healthcare system <laughs> might want to see everything <laughs> shook up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it's, you have to think about exactly how that would all play out, how people would be affected. It doesn't seem like something you'd want to necessarily do all at once. Um, and I think, you know, thinking about expanding existing public programs. Let's talk about that, because when you talk about transition, that's one of the options, opening up Medicare, for instance, mm -hmm. opening up Medicaid, or Medicaid, continuing to open up Medicaid, but certainly Medicare, which is a single-payer system within our current health care system, most, mostly for elderly Americans. As you mentioned, there's a uh, a private market on top of that mm -hmm. Medicare Part D, where people could uh, D and uh, C, where people could get a Medicare Advantage, where people could get um, additional private coverage. Is that an option? Opening up Medicare to younger people? It was considered during the healthcare debate in 2010. Mm -hmm. A senator by the name of Joe Lieberman really slammed the door on mm -hmm. that one. Um, but should we reopen it again? So I think it's worth considering. I think part of the interesting question is sort of. When you think about what the Affordable Care Act has done is really um, expanded and improved upon the Medicaid program. 
you know, it's a much more comprehensive program today than it was before that act was passed. A lot of innovative and exciting things are happening in the Medicaid program. I feel like folks are very focused on Medicare um, because it's been around a long time and people have had very positive feelings towards it for a long time. Medicaid was always sort of the the redheaded stepchild. Yep. Um, you know, and in part of that's because of the fact that it wasn't covering everybody under the under um, an income line. You know, and that it it was a, a more uh, scattered sort of program just because of the, the nature. But now that you see a more comprehensive Medicaid, I think it's a very interesting question whether you would want to say Medicare for all, whether you'd want to allow something like Medicaid buy-in, which we saw being considered in Nevada, um, or a combination. I mean, you could imagine a world. So one of the things is uh, the facts of life. As you get older, you get more costly, right? And so would you want to just lower the age of Medicare, let uh, older folks Maybe people and they're healthier. And this is the other piece of it is that the younger folks, as you point out, facts of life are healthier. And so I don't remember. I'm trying to remember now back to to this debate. But there is some piece about you allow younger folks into the program. You open it up to like 55 or something. And that actually increases the life of the program. Is this right? Because they pay in more than they um, take out of the program or the program doesn't. You, the program isn't paying out more for services for them because they're healthier. Yeah, so I'm not sure exactly how the, the numbers play out, but the general concept that you're talking about is true, exactly. Yeah. It's a case of removing people that are relatively expensive from the standpoint of the current market, meaning the individual marketplace or the employer market. Um, but from the standpoint of Medicare, they're actually right. <laughs> quite, they're young, vibrant, relative. healthy. <laughs> exactly, it all, it all matters where where you sit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you could certainly imagine a system in which you lower that age, you know, pull more of those folks in. You have a program that that's sort of already designed to uh, focus on the, the needs mm-hmm. of uh, older an older people. population. Yep. And then you have uh, you could imagine a Medicaid that was expanded to let folks um, into there. I think a couple questions there would be, you know, would you still have an employer provided system? What would you be doing uh, in that situation? I think also, of course, you, you know, Medicaid is backstopping Medicare. A lot of people don't know this or at least don't realize this until they have, say, an elderly parent That's in a nursing point. home, but, yeah. but a huge portion of, of folks in nursing home, they're getting their that funding from Medicaid. So there's an interaction there. But I think, I mean, these are sort of, these are fascinating questions. I think things that would be great to dig into. I think, to be honest, <laughs> neither you nor I have had really time to be, you know, digging into them in, in, in great depth over the last few months, for example, because we've been having an entirely different and, and yeah. kind of through the looking glass debate. But it is interesting, I think, if we can step back from the uh, the debate around the Affordable Care Act, basically, should we be providing people health care or not, and think about what the changes that it has made in our health care system mean in terms of um, not just maintaining the Affordable Care Act system, but for folks that you know want to see uh, single payer or something more like single payer. What are the opportunities that have been created there? How do we build on this system in a way that, that might be... Uh, something that they like a little bit more. And I think it's very, it's a very interesting one. And then gradually, you're talking about gradually moving towards single payer, building up. The Affordable Care Act, as is, is you mentioned, one of the benefits is that it's built on the current system. And the question is, can you continue to improve the Affordable Care Act to squeeze out inefficiencies, lower costs, and get to a place where health care is just frankly like simpler in the United States like it is in many other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things about the Affordable Care Act, for folks that are more market-oriented, obviously there are a lot of elements of that in the system, and, and they might want to argue for 
expanding that. I think, you know, in a more rational world, they'd be arguing for expanding that. And I think there, there are obviously parts that have, you know, expanded the, the public provision of care and, or coverage, excuse me, and folks that are more interested there can make that argument. And we actually kind of have that kind of productive debate mm-hmm. that assumes, yeah, we're going to cover everybody. What do we think is the best way to do it? And so I think in that sense, the Affordable Care Act is a good starting point for a real discussion, a discussion about how to improve efficiencies, what's the best way to provide health care in the system, where do we want our dollars going, and, and how many dollars do we want to spend. Uh, once we accept that, yeah, we want to cover people, we want to provide high-quality coverage, we're not very that focused. Be, that has to be the baseline. We're not, yeah, we're not, <laughs> we're not so concerned about giving more tax breaks to the wealthy or insurance companies or drug companies. You know, what we are focused on is improving care and expanding yeah. care, or excuse me, improving care, expanding coverage. Um, and so in that world, uh, you could start having this debate. And I think the Affordable Care Act is a, is a good starting point for people kind of no matter where you, you are on that spectrum. But the important thing is it's a starting point because yeah. it's providing yeah. 20 million people coverage. It's crazy the way I have to say that. It's, <laughs> it's, the way, it's, in at, my, it's in my blood. You can tell now. I can't. <laughs> at BP Show, Addy Gorvolsky, if you want to weigh in on the single-payer debate. Peter, we started the show by having a little back and forth on single payer. Sure. What are you hearing our conversation now? Uh, how do you feel? Well, I mean, look, it, clearly to hear you two talk about it, 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 it becomes a much more nuanced conversation than I think a lot of people are ready to have, especially those people who are on the side of uh, single payer and, and nothing else. But I do th- think that, like, hearing this conversation – uh, really only highlights that like people are ready to talk about it. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of the reason that Obamacare got so uh, got to be such a, a sort of uh, wedge issue, even though we know that a lot of Republicans and Republican states or red states use Obamacare and and have, don't been, even really and have benefited greatly yeah. from mm-hmm. Obamacare is that like, a lot of Democrats weren't ready to face the fact that, like, Obamacare was not perfect, right? Like, they just didn't mm-hmm. want to talk about it. We spent a long time not talking about the problems with Obamacare because that's what the Republicans did. And, look, I get it. Like, I know you want to defend your guy. And, you, and I'm not talking about you specifically. <laughs> I just meant, like, Democrats in general. You want to defend your guy. And it's a, t- it's a, it's a tough thing to do. But, like, you got to have this conversation. we got to be real that, like, Obamacare is kind of a mess right now. But, like, fixable. Definitely fixable. Yeah. yeah. And so actually, I just I would mention that I think that uh, folks that are pushing for single payer, I think, first of all, they should keep pushing. You know, if they care of this. First of all, I'm glad that they care about this issue, that they want to see more folks covered, that they're looking to improve the system. I think that's a great instinct and, and people should keep doing that. And I think it it's a good idea to have that be part of the debate. It should be part of the debate. It should be a real part of the debate. We should be talking about how much it would cost, how we might do it. Do we want to go all the way there? How would we, you know, how would that interact with the private system? Because you need to have these conversations if you're ever going to be able to actually make changes. Yeah. And I think shifting that conversation into that world, a world in which it's assumed that we're going to cover people, and now the question is the best way to do it, is great. I think that folks that are pushing for single payer have made tremendous contributions to that conversation. They're going to keep doing it. And I think it'll be very interesting to have that kind of productive debate where we're really digging into ideas, figuring out exactly where people stand, what it is that they mean. I think we'll be able to learn a lot, and I think it would result in a healthcare system that's much better for many, many more people. So, and the other piece that we should talk about that I think doesn't get as much attention as it deserves is lowering healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. How much we as a nation spend on healthcare now? Obamacare did some of that mm-hmm. in some of the payment reforms that we talked about, encouraging healthcare providers to 
offer care more efficiently, mm-hmm. investing in prevention. There's a whole prevention fund mm-hmm. that the ACA set up that, of course, the uh, Republican alternative would, would take a lot of money out of. But what are some other solutions um, to really bring down the overall cost, just because we are so off the charts on the international comparison? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one obvious place to start would be drug costs. Mm. This is something that the Affordable Care Act didn't really do much with, and we've seen a lot of issues around that. I think, you know, there's a lot to be done there. Drug costs can be quite high. I mean, they were astronomically high a couple of years ago. Maybe they're coming down a little bit. But I think in general, that's a market that needs some regulation. People are doing some things that are just unconscionable in terms of drastically raising the cost. But I think it's not just that you have a lot of bad actors, which I do think that there are. It's also that it's a market that's very opaque. Yeah. Who's paying who, how much they're getting, who's in control, who's setting prices. I mean, some of the stuff around EpiPen is obviously, I think there are real <laughs> concerns about yes. you know what that company was doing yep. and raising prices. Some of it, though, was they kind of like, who was actually getting paid and where was it going? I mean, it was like, uh, where's Waldo trying to mm-hmm. figure out who was getting what? So that's a system that needs to be a lot more transparent. I think one in which uh, you'd want to see a lot more competition. You could see improvements around bringing in generics. Uh, obviously, there are drugs in other com- in other other countries. Sorry, the same drugs in other countries that cost a lot less. There are a lot of things that you could talk about there and trying to reform that yeah, whole and by the market. Way, there might be bipartisan support for this. I mean, we spoke to uh, Al Franken yesterday for our podcast, Thinking Cap, which you could subscribe to on iTunes, and you really should. There you go. Uh, he <laughs> talked about his drug bill uh, that I think he has bipartisan support for. So there is some effort uh, by Republicans to also tackle this issue. It's also something that President Trump ran on, uh, lowering these mm-hmm. prescription costs. Yeah, I, I think that they're, well... He certainly at least ran on it. I think, he ran on it. You know, <laughs> we can agree. He ran on. He it. He ran on it. Whether the team of of drug company executives that he's put together to actually work out the policy are going to decide. Oh, that, they're going to come up with a great solution. What are you worried about? <laughs> no, they're I mean, in charge I, of this. They're going to certainly fix it. the the first impetus will be to reduce drug company pro- profits. But whether they'll get there is <laughs> that's definitely what they're is an open by. open question. Yeah, let's yeah. make sure that we're giving the the best price to folks. I mean, I think you know, but joking aside, there is a real concern there, right? That that there was all this talk about it, and then you see sort of what he's putting together, yeah, and it's straight out of the drug company playbook. It doesn't seem to be doing anything right. for folks that actually are paying for yeah. the drugs, but it's doing a lot for the folks that are manufacturing and yeah. distributing them. All right. Sam Berger, got to leave it there. Former senior health policy uh, advisor for President Obama's Domestic Policy Council, my colleague at the Center for American Progress. Follow him at Sam Berger, DC. is the Bill Press Show.